You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Hello. Can you hear can you hear me? Okay, cool. Do you want to do a mic test? Yeah, I think that's working. Yeah. Fabulous. Um, sorry, I'm just very dehydrated. As you can probably see, I'm pregnant. So uh, I'm just going to have a sip of this before I start speaking. We're going to start with me doing a quick reading um, from the book, and then we're going to go into conversation. Now I'm going to read from two short, um, two short-ish segments. The first one is um, an experience, an early childhood experience of having my hair braided in Nigeria. Um, it's from chapter two, which is a chapter about time. And the second excerpt that I'm going to read is from chapter six, which is a chapter about maths, mapping, braiding, and encoding. And um, it details the mathematical processes that are involved in braiding and references this strong tradition of maths that um, existed across the African continent that is quite little well-known because it doesn't really fit the narrative of African primitivism that we are more commonly um, bombarded with. Okay. Over the course of my life, I have spent what must amount to years having my hair done. From Brazil through Nigeria, the UK and the US, to Trinidad and Tokyo, in homes and in salons, bougie and backyard, staring at my own reflection and that of the women above and behind me, whose blue-black, dark-black, red-black, yellow-black, light-black hands apply creams and potions, stitching lines and tracks of weave to my crown in the service of an alchemy that transforms what grows on my head from one thing into an almost entirely unrecognizable other. My bum has gone numb sitting on stools in various living rooms, my own and others, listening to the shrieks of children and the high-octane melodrama of Nollywood, while I have extensions attached to create meticulous braids that tumble down my back. As a young child, I spent long hours on the floor wedged between the strong legs of strangers, my head cradled in their lap. These early childhood memories are vague in detail, but strong in atmosphere. It is very warm, the earth is red, everything else muted browns and beige. Dust motes lend the air gossamer-like materiality. We are in a small wooden building. My head is positioned in the lap of the hairdresser. I think I'm facing towards her. I'm certainly with my mother. My aunt, my father's sister, is perhaps with us too. I have a lot of hair. Deft fingers divide it with mathematical precision. I am not particularly tender-headed, but nor, if I'm honest, am I used to having my hair thoroughly combed. I am certainly not used to having my head yanked in this undeniably violent fashion. My scalp is on fire. I instinctively pull against the direction of my torturer. Sit still or I will slap you. The tears spring to my eyes. Stop crying or I will slap you. Nor am I used to such commands. The tears freeze before they have a chance to flow. In desperation, I make pleading eyes at my mother, who's here. 
<laughs> no shade. <laughs> she casually looks away. She does not leap to my rescue. The ordeal eventually ends, and my hair has been transformed into a style I can now identify as shukku. Not exactly the hair of my dreams. I had wanted long, silky, swishy princess hair. Yet the memory is not an unhappy one. While the experience may not have been entirely comfortable, I've always enjoyed having my hair braided. I like the sensation of feeling it parted, the sharp teeth of the comb making contact with the scalp that is otherwise carefully protected, courtesy of the thick, dense hair that grows from my head. There is something terribly reassuring about hands that know exactly what to do and how to do it. Confident hands that recognize my hair. Hands, even when they are those of a stranger, that nonetheless identify my hair texture as familiar. A world apart from the reluctant hands of white stylists, whose fear of touching often feels at best underscored by the fascination of encountering an exotic, or at worst by distaste. The same could be said of the clueless hands of white boyfriends who have tried to run their fingers through a texture not designed for that particular activity. In fact, I love my head being touched, but only by those who know that any attempt to run anything through it will result in snagging and pulling and most likely mash up whatever fabulous hairstyle I've taken pains to achieve. Generally, black people know that our hair takes time and effort to do, so they don't usually try and put their grubby hands in it. I think there is also more of an awareness of boundaries and personal space, as well as the enduring, if these days, implicit awareness that our hair has a spiritual significance. Look, but don't touch. White people, take note. Um, how am I for time? I feel that was the five minutes. Well, I don't know, do you want to read the second excerpt? Do you want to hear the second excerpt? Yeah. Okay, oh, <laughs> let's go with that. <laughs> Okay, this one is like me like geeking out like on maths, um, which is something I hated in school. So my, um, my kind of rediscovery of how exciting maths is in, in, in researching this book is something that's very new and odd feeling to me. But um, it's also a chapter of the book that I don't often get to talk about as much as the others because it's just far less familiar terrain. But um, yeah, I would just like to, just like to introduce it. Um, In the Western educational system, maths is taught as something abstract, removed from everyday life. In contrast, African hairstyling is a place where maths is unconsciously applied in each step of the process. In 1998, the mathematician Gloria Ford Gilmer conducted research in braiding patterns in New York and Baltimore. Gloria and her assistants interviewed both stylists and clients about tessellations in box braids, brick and triangle-like patterns, a method of dividing the hair that determines its movement. The stylists in Gilmer's study claim that they are not consciously mathematical, but the process of black hairstyling could not exist without multiple and complex calculations. Measuring the extensions necessary for uniform braids requires algebra. Actual braiding itself uses geometry. Impressed by the ability to create such immaculately uniform braided extensions or by the intricate designs and complex geometric shapes I have seen emerging on my own head, I have asked stylists how they do what they are doing with such astonishing precision. Not once has anybody specifically referenced mathematical calculation. Recently, I posted a new style on Instagram. Shortly afterwards, I received an email asking me about it. The request was from a white designer, and he said, 
I'm intrigued to know how the stylist divides the geometric, geometric sections with such straight parting lines between them. It's a real work of art. I'd have to do a scale drawing or make a template before starting anything that geometrically complex and precise. When I next saw her, I asked my hairdresser how she had designed my previous style and more generally how she worked. I design it as I go along, I just know. You're the academic, you tell me how I know, she quipped. <laughs> Just, I'll just finish this quickly. The type of knowledge she possesses might be understood as what the American artist and academic Natrice Gaskins describes as belonging to embodied memory institutions or technologies of the African past. That this particular stylist is African-Caribbean demonstrates a connection that has been passed down over centuries, sustained across both oceans and time, a direct link back to a past that the European understanding of history describes as unrecoverable. For Gaskins, corn rowing invo invokes other African practices that have survived the Middle Passage. She explains that braiding functions as another example of the weaving or interweaving of cultures, identities, Im images, fabric and sound. That are not only a defining characteristic of African diasporic culture, but that operate as a part of a pool of cultural resources. These constitute part of what sustained the descendants of those stolen Africans through the long, dark centuries of exile in the West. Okay, the last bit, sorry. If an algorithm is the process of following a set of rules to complete a procedure, it is not too much of a stretch to describe braiding as algo algorithmic. Thus, Gaskins builds the case for cornrowing to be described as a technology which I then go on to defend, um, but I'll stop there. Okay, so we're gonna chat for about half an hour, then we're gonna throw out questions to the audience for about 15 minutes. Um, so if you have a burning question, please keep it inside you <laughs> until the appropriate time, thank you. Okay, so Emma, does the book have a an overarching argument, would you say? It definitely has an over overarching argument. Um, well, there's multiple things going on. So on the most, um, I guess, basic level, the overarching kind of objective, what was important to me, was to put to bed all of the incensed voices that I have um, encountered in my life that are just like, oh, it's only hair. What are they kind of, when, you, when these issues come up um, in discourse or media, there's a, there's a whole kind of trench of people that are very quick to dismiss it as something just very superficial, very vacuous, and to say it's something that's very surface level and that it's only hair. So the book is very much a retort to that, or a riposte to that, to show that when we're talking about black hair, it is so much more than something that is just a superficial and shallow thing. But... Beyond that, um, I teach African studies in SOAS, and um, it was really an opportunity for me to kind of introduce by stealth um, some of the fascinating things that I've learned through the process of um, researching and teaching there for so long about um, African philosophies, African metaphysics, and they can often, a lot of these concepts can be attached back to hair or kind of the stories told through hair. So it was an opportunity to 
challenge that very strong narrative that Africa is the dark continent, a place without history, a place without civilization, a place without philosophy, and um, bring those conversations that happen, but often in very tiny academic spaces to a mainstream audience, kind of by stealth. Um, a friend of mine referred to the book as a Trojan horse. So on one level, it's you know about hair, but there's really like a lot more, a lot more going on. Yeah, it's interesting. I think uh, the idea of the book rebuking the uh, the point that sometimes is said, oh, it's only hair, which is often raised when usually in conversations about cultural appropriation. I think, um, which we'll get onto later. But I always wonder if it's only hair, why is it when you or I rock up to the workplace with a different hairstyle. People are like, ooh. Like, I was just in, the, I was at the BBC very, fairly recently, and the producer who um, picked me up at reception was a black girl. And um, just as uh, we were walking up to the studio, her boss said, oh, you've changed your hair. Which makes me think, if it's so insignificant, why, why raise it? <laughs> you <know>? Absolutely. <laughs> if it's so insignificant, why the fascination with it? Why the obsession with it? Um, if it's so insignificant, why is legislation being brought into, um, into play that's making it illegal to discriminate against black people because of our hair texture? Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's not insignificant. So in the book, you speak about all sorts of different types of uh, styles that black people wear hair in. And um, taking a look at the demographics of this audience, I feel maybe I'm going to have to explain some of them. Um, <laughs> I was thinking by Irish standards, it's actually... <laughs> Quite I a black know. audience. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to, uh, um, but just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Because before we spoke, before, before we got on stage, Randy was like, do you think people will know what relaxer is? Well, I have to explain relaxer. Mm. We were discussing, and I was like, oh, they'll probably know, but yeah, I think we might need to. Okay. <laughs> so I think there's quite a lot of interesting commentary in the book about, like, the origins of particular hairstyles um, that black people wear our hair in, um, specifically in the diaspora. So let's just do some definitions first before we go into the ins and outs of them. So okay. relaxing, can you define? Yeah, so just, okay, no, I'll, I'll define it. I was going to put it out to the audience, but we'll wait for that interaction for later on. Um, so relaxing is chemically straightening your hair. So it's Rela I, I often think the word relaxer is a very interesting choice of word. It's quite an innocuous and gentle sounding term for what is quite a brutal process. Um, essentially, you're deforming the elliptical shape of your hair to make it, um, to create a facsimile of European hair. Um, so applying really harsh chemicals that are linked to cancers, um, endocrine disruption, um, fertility issues, lots of different things, all to have straight hair. So, can we think of uh, anybody in the public eye who has hair like this? I can't really think of anyone just that just reference. has relaxed hair. I can think of a lot of weaves, but mm. I feel like relaxed hair has really, in these days, not many it's people... Fallen are, out of favor. It's fallen yeah. out of favour. Like, sales have really yeah, tanked. We, we don't want to burn tanked. our scalps anymore. Yeah. Um, Okay, so wigs, I don't think that needs defining. But what I will say about wigs is, you know, it's kind of changing a little bit now with Insta baddies and whatnot. But um, until recently, wigs are like very stigmatized generally in mm. like white society. Like the idea that you'd wear a wig, the shame associated with it. The same relationship to artificial hair is there in black societies. Wigs are something that are used um, 
very commonly. And there's a long tradition of using them in the African context as well. It's not something that has just kind of started in the diaspora. Mm. Weaves. Weaves. So weaves um, are the attachment of hair to your own hair. There's lots of different ways to do that. It can be through bonded, gluing. That's more of a 90s thing that's kind of damaging and has died out, but that's what I used to do. Um, your hair can be braided and the weave can be sewn on. That's more typical. Um, and until recently, the idea with weaves was kind of that it was usually a facsimile. Well, it's usually Asian hair that's used, not European hair, because Asians tend to have um, thicker and more lustrous hair. Um, so the kind of idealized straight hair. Um, but increasingly, we're seeing weaves that are um, mimicking Afro textures. So that's more just about kind of fullness and abundance rather than the same level of transformation. Um, There's crochet braids as well, which I don't talk about in the book, but which I have now, hmm. um, which are your hair again is braided and then each individual um, strand, strand well, lock. I don't know. It's, yeah. I would say like, it's a lock. A strand yeah. is a single hair. So yeah, so we'll it's, a, it's a lock. Um, each lock is, is crocheted onto your braided hair underneath. Um, I just had this done two days ago, so it's actually quite painful. Um, <laughs> and I was shoving like cotton buds with hot water in amongst the the um, the gaps this morning, trying oh, to like I don't know. It was really helping. It was right. just like soothing. It's not something I've done before. So it was in desperation <laughs> in the hotel. I was like, will that work? And it was quite soothing. But actually, as soon as I turned up in Dublin, um, I encountered um, a woman working in this bar in the airport and this was like the first exchange I had yesterday the first person I spoke to apart from the guy who I showed my passport to and she said to me in a strong Polish accent um you have very unusual hair I tweeted about this you might have seen like a doll this it was getting worse and worse then she just started like cr like cracking up like I and I was just like <laughs> thank you it's <laughs> <Yeah, there you laughs> <go. laughs> just like <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's <laughs> never polite to just randomly comment on a stranger's um, physical appearance to laugh uproariously yeah, and yet it happens nice. <laughs> so, <Not often>. nice. <laughs> so um, I noticed in the book that you came out in terms of all of the different styles I, I think you speak about afros which I don't think need explaining um, <laughs> and also a jerry curl which <laughs> I claim to be one of the first people in Ireland to have had <laughs> A jerry curl, the best way I can describe that is, who's seen Coming to America? That's... <laughs> so you know the soul glow? Like the guy who's inherited the hair empire and he has this really like greasy, like wet look perm. Mm -hmm. That's the jerry curl. It was very... Beast singers of the 80s. Yeah, very yeah. popular in the 80s. I was actually rocking one in the early 90s because we were a bit behind. Um, <laughs> and I had to go to Manchester to get it. And I came back to Dublin. I thought I was the business. My big greasy head. <laughs> But I find, I personally found in the book, you come out very hard on the side of braiding um, and linking it back to Yoruba culture, which is a tribe in Nigeria, if you didn't know. Um, and I think that, I don't know, you can disagree with me on this, but I think that in terms of like relaxing wigs and weaves, I've, I think not that you go after people who wear those styles, but you really critique those styles mm -hmm. um, significantly in the book. And I wondered how... You, you know, I'm a writer writing about political issues, so I'm always busy walking on hot coals trying not to offend people um, and managing to anyway. Um, <laughs> how did you navigate writing 
those parts of the book without trying to implicate people who wear those styles, yeah, yeah. which are fairly Eurocentric. I think we can yeah. agree. Well, I actually make um, quite a strong argument that I locate weaves of any texture within the tradition of the kind of creativity and innovation that exists in uh, black hairstyling. Um, and I say that um, it's just part of the process of the transformation. So I really don't come down on weaves at all. My issue with the relaxing is not so much what the look that's being attempted to achieve, but it's just the dangerousness of the, of the practice, the mm. toxicity of what's, of what's used on the head. But I actually make the argument that you could argue, and this will, people, you might be like, what the fuck? But like, that you could argue that relaxed hair actually is aesthetically more African than the Afro. And the re this is more complicated than I, what I wanted to get into. When you read it, it's, it makes more sense. But I reference Cobina Mercer, who's a well-known um, cultural the theorist. Um, he focuses on art and art, art and aesthetics. I think he teaches at Harvard. He's black British, so Harvard or Yale. Um, and he talks about how the Afro is, um, and this is something that's true. So in the West African context, why I talk about braiding so much in reference to the Yoruba, and Yoruba is like my paternal ancestry, is that traditionally women particularly would never have left their hair out. Mm. So it would always be braided. So the reason I talk about braiding so much is not because I'm like a massive advocate of braiding, um, but more so just because that was the default way of styling hair. The Afro is something that emerges in the diaspora. I think there's also other, maybe in East Africa, there's also older... Um, there's more historical accounts of Afro, but I focus uh, quite a lot on West Africa. Um, so for people of West African descent, the Afro is something that um, emerges in the diaspora as an um, act of defiance in a context where people are being told that their hair texture is ugly, and they're like, no, I'm going to showcase this thing that you're telling me is lesser than. There was no need to do that in the Yoruba context, so they braided, so they braided their hair. Um, within a lot of West African traditional aesthetics, the idea of artifice is um, very central to the aesthetics. So it's the intervention in hair that makes hair beautiful. So the idea of just leaving it out is not a norm, whereas straightening it is artifice. So aesthetically, and also African cultures, I talk a lot about um, black cultural production beyond hair, how it's incredibly dynamic, how wherever you get kind of populations of people of African descent, um, they will often in really shitty circumstances um, create cultural production that becomes very, very seductive and appealing to everybody who kind of wants a piece of it. And we see this in music, we see this in lots of different ways. But um, they respond, people respond to the environment that they're in to create something new. So I make the argument that hair, relaxed hair is responding to a new environment. And when you look at the artifice that's involved, the argument can be made that it's aesthetically quite African. Yeah, I thought that was a, a particularly interesting bit of the book. And also I think, you know, what you said about dreads as well in the African context, I don't know if you wish to elaborate. Yeah, so again, I think there are some instances of locks in, um, maybe again, Eastern and Southern Africa historically, but in West Africa, that's not a cultural norm. Um, so people see the Afro, people see locks as being, you know, these very natural African styles. But again, locks were an act of kind of, well, the spiritual dimension, but also an act of like 
kind of defiance and rebellion that emerges in the diaspora. And traditionally in Yoruba culture, if there's any Yoruba speakers here, I forgive my pronunciation, but um, uh, the word for locks is irunwere, which is like basically associated with like poor mental health. So the only person that would allow their hair to lock and become matted would be somebody that's kind of succumbed to the, pre that, that, that can't cope. Well, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's, what happens to your hair when you stop washing, combing, it, it becomes matte. It, it exactly, matted, so. exactly. And then the other reference is Dada as well. And they're babies mm -hmm. that are children that are born with their hair already locked. And they're seen as being, um, that's seen as, as being of great like spiritual significance. They're kind of like special children. But they're the examples of locking that you see in West Africa. So, you know, we've discussed this um, a little bit. So... You're Nigerian, well, Nigerian-Irish. I am Nigerian also. Um, my, Yoruba is my uh, maternal um, influence. <laughs> and, um, and I notice a lot in the book that, there's, that Yoruba braiding in the pre-colonial context is a, is a huge reference point that you keep going back to. Mm -hmm. um, and I wondered if, and the book's been out for less than a month, so this may not have happened, if um, people from any other African countries have said, what about us? <laughs> not yet. Because, and the reason I ask is because, and um, those of you who pay attention to these things will notice that Nigerians tend to dominate <laughs> um, <laughs> culturally. I mean, I think... And could, Yorubas as well. It, like, indeed, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, if you ask a Yoruba person, they say it's the Igbo people who dominate. And if you... <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, we do tend to dominate, I think, culturally in the diaspora. I think if you can think of most famous black British people in this country, particularly cultural producers, there's going to be some Nigerian person behind it somewhere. Um, and so, and this is just on my mind because I recently went to an event at SOAS, actually. Um, I'm no longer speaking to Nigerians to about no race. No longer talking to <laughs> Nigerians about race. Um, <laughs> Which a play on Rennie's book title. Indeed, yeah. So obviously I had to go down and see what it was all about. And uh, it's full of people from other African countries, not complaining about us, but you know, just sort of like... <laughs> so, sometimes I feel there can be a little bit of uh, saltiness about our dominance. For real, for yeah, real, so. for real. Um, and it's yeah. not, it's not unfair saltiness, I would say. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. I, I actually really welcome this question. It's really interesting. Um, I, I totally agree. Um, my rationale in doing it was not only is it my direct reference point because I happen to be Yoruba. If I was a different ethnic group, that's probably the ethnic group I would have chosen to to write about. But the Yoruba is still Yoruba is still probably said like a true Yoruba nationalist. Um, Yoruba is still um, important because it's actually one of the cultures that was well maintained, um, the aspects of it have been very well preserved in the diaspora, not from the recent migrations, but from, the, from, from slavery. So that's why, you, and that, that probably is to do with the, the structure of Yoruba society, which lends itself to the dominance, because when you look at Brazil, when you look at, when you look at Cuba, so religions like Candomblé, Santeria, um, the Yoruba presence is so strong in those, new world, in those new world religions. And often when black Americans reference um, an ancestral um, 
culture, it will be it will often be Yoruba culture or the the kind of re renaissance or reinterest in all of the Orisha. Um, and again, that probably reflects the, the dominance of Yoruba. But because it's a because it's my own um, ancestry, and because um, it has such a prominence in the Americas, it seemed like a relevant one to reference. And I also really wanted to talk with specificity because people talk about Africa as though it's not this huge and incredibly diverse place. So I didn't want to just say, because a lot of the hairstyles that I give the Yoruba words for, those hairstyles exist in other cultures as well. But I wanted to be specific because people so rarely are when they talk about Africa. And also for all their um, dominance, Nigerians get such a bad rap. Um, the association with... I'm allowed to critique that. No, no, completely. Nobody else is. No, no, of, of course, of course. And when it's coming from Africans, that's actually different. But mm. I mean, the I remember like be, when people started to have an awareness of Nigeria here, the Ibocate, the that they started referencing it to me was kind of in the mid-90s. And there were all these headlines talking about like Nigerians and fraud and like just all of the cr these criminal associations with Nigerians. So, Nigerians. so when I'd say that I was like half Nigerian, people would kind of like be like, oh my God, that's like the most corrupt country on earth. Like so, and actually it's not. Well, didn't David I think Cameron it's, I think it's number two. Didn't um, David Cameron say that just fairly recently as well? Yeah, exactly. They're fantastically corrupt. He caused a diplomatic incident, didn't he, less than five years ago? Yeah. Anybody remembers. And he referred to these countries as fantastically corrupt. And I was like, well, the reason that the corruption can flourish is because of the system that you guys left in place like kind of 50 years ago and the vacuum that all these corrupt people could be kind of positioned in by you. So let's look at why they're so fantastically corrupt. Um, so yeah, also, I, th th there's so much of value um, in Yoruba society. There's so, much, there's, there's so much that's interesting in Yoruba philosophy. There's so much about Yoruba beyond corruption and fraud that I really wanted to kind of pay service to that. Well, I found it interesting, <laughs> and I think you will too. I mean, I obviously being Yoruba myself, <laughs> was absolutely fascinated by it. But I think even if you don't have a Yoruba mother or father, like you'll be absolutely uh, enthralled. So talking about some of that philosophy, I don't know how much time we've got. Can somebody give... Another 10 minutes. Okay, cool. So we'll go with one last question and touch on that philosophy. So I think that um, you make a very convincing argument about um, time um, and how a pre-colonial, is it Europe specifically concept of time or? So this is actually something you see across Africa, mm. but again, I didn't want to generalize. So I was like, let me locate this as Yoruba, but you see it in Bantu, you see it in lots of different mm. um, African groups, yeah. So, and I guess I'm gonna try and summarize this, but. Please do, because I don't want to. Okay, um, <laughs> you can argue with my interpretation if okay. you wish. Just, Emma essentially writes that I think for many of us who have this hair, one thing that, you know, is a barrier to keeping on top of it is not, oh, how difficult it is to manage, because that's a lie, um, but just the time, you know? So you'll see, if you, if you do follow natural hair vloggers or bloggers, they say it's wash day, because it really does take a day, you know? <laughs> or for me, like, I wash my hair, but I like to air dry it. I don't like to have heat, so, like, it means that, I'm not doing anything else for the rest of the day. I'm washing my hair, I'm air drying it, and I'm just knocking about at home. Yeah. And um, the argument that you make is that that 
that feeling of time scarcity is uh, essentially a Eurocentric one. And um, the, the process of doing one's hair in pre-colonial times, it was social, it was nurturing, it wasn't about just trying to grab the spare four hours you have during your busy work week. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, that, that's a great summation. Thank you. Um, <laughs> do, do elaborate on that, because I think that that's an interesting one for... <laughs> yeah, so, um, so I, I was interested in the idea of black people time, you might be familiar with. <laughs> so I'm chronically late. So this, this might have, part of it might have been just like an elaborate ploy for me to justify my lateness and base it in some like kind of ancestral, it's culturally insensitive to expect me to be on time. So there might be like an element of that, of, of that going on, but beyond that. Um, yeah, I was just interested, in, extremely interested in how capitalism has repurposed time to be about the maximization of profit and how as a result we don't actually have the time to do the things that are necessary to our health and our happiness. Um, for black people, for black women, well for anyone who's black and has hair beyond a certain length, um, as Renny was saying, it is, I try and avoid using the word time consuming because when you look at, um, oh, hey baby, <laughs> it's been so quiet until now. Um, uh, uh, yeah, there's this idea that you don't have the time to do your hair. And as a result of that, there's something wrong with our hair, that our hair is deviant. And I'm like... Because you can't just do brush, brush and go. That's yeah, not exactly. You can't just do, like, tousles. I just got out of bed and it's like, you know, like, whatever, shabby chic. Um, so I was, like, frustrated by the idea that our hair is, like, deviant. And I'm like, no, a system has been created that never really thought about our needs or concerns, and then we're just expected to fit into that. So I started looking at how time was organized, um, how, how African people, and I make the reference to Yoruba, but this can be generalized to other African groups, how they organized time, and they organized it around what was significant to them. So you wouldn't have not had the time to do your hair, because your time was yours to do what you wanted with, and hair was of great importance, so you would have the time. When the British were beginning to colonize, not just Nigeria, but the whole of Africa, they were incensed by what they called African idleness. And I have references in the book where they're, they're literally livid. They're talking about um, people sitting around, spending ages brushing, fet I don't know, fetishing out their woolly hair, I think is the, the, the phrase they use. It's very archaic language. Um, and they're just like, this is a time where people could be productive and could be like, you know, making money to pay us taxes to make our country rich. Um, how dare they be spending hours in their hair? And it was just that, um, that tension between two different ways of life and two different sets of priorities. Yeah, I, I thought it was super interesting because I consider myself to have a pretty simple hairstyle. Like, I went natural like six years ago. But still, if I want to do some manipulation, I have to think about at least 48 hours in advance. You know, if I want to do a yeah. twist out, like, then I will need to sleep on it, which means that if I want the twist out to be ready for that day, then I need to make sure that I put time aside for the, the day beforehand to do the twisting before I go to bed, blah, blah, blah. And also, um, I don't know if you've ever swung by Charlotte Mensah's salon. Um, I haven't yet. I'm dying to. Well, do. Beautiful um, salon in London. I remember London. the first time... Uh, Charlotte Mensah, by the way, is the first um, black woman to be inducted into the British Hairdressing Awards Hall of Fame, which is, like, awesome, but also, like, extremely late coming. And, <laughs> um, 
And I remember when I went there, like the first time I went there, she was like, so like, how much time do you have? And I was like, oh, you know, I've got the rest of the day for you. She was like, oh, thank goodness, because sometimes these women come, the high-profile women come, they're like, I've got two hours and I have to go. But if you go to her salon, like, clear the rest of the diary. <laughs> because you're going to be chatting, you're going to be making friends. And the last time I was there, I didn't leave for, like, hours. And I had a great time. Yeah, yeah, And my hair yeah. looked fantastic. Yeah. And um, it's certainly not like, you know, when I go to white salons, you know, when I do find the person who can cut my hair, which is... There's a couple in, in London. Um, and it's like I'm in and out within yeah, yeah, 80 yeah. minutes. And that's just my own random... No, 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 <laughs> no, no, that's not random at all. That's very, like, relevant to, mm. to, to what I'm talking about in the book, absolutely. So I'm going to ask you um, about the natural hair movement. I think that'll be our last question. Okay. How do you feel about that? Feel? It's all right, yeah. Okay, so, <laughs> so you cover the rise of the natural hair movement in the book. Um, and I think it's a really interesting read. But one thing that I was surprised that... And I read a bit of an early version of the book, so this may be different in the... Uh, finished that proof copy. is so rough roughshod when i found out that's the version rennie had i was like oh god my heart sank <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the rise of the natural hair movement i thought it was interesting that you didn't at least in the version that i read speak about the curly nicky white woman natural hair scandal of 2014 Ah, I don't know if you're aware of it. But I didn't, I didn't, but I talk about the appropriation of natural hair by white women with curly hair ah. um, in chapter five. There's a case study. I talk about it a lot. Yeah. Well, let's so. discuss. <laughs> let's discuss. So what I'm referring to is uh, in 2014, a website called Curly Nikki, um, which was like aimed at essentially black women transitioning their hair from relaxed to natural, we now all understand those terms, um, <laughs> posted an article from a white woman with curly hair who said, I'm embracing my natural curls, and I'm now part of the natural hair movement. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, I think. <laughs> so can you tell me a bit about the case study that you cover in the book? Yeah, so I, I, didn't, re I didn't reference that um, because there's the book definitely isn't like kind of a plotted history of like the natural hair movement and to be honest like that's in there but as is probably apparent I'm more interested in what predates that mm. um but I talk about the Shea and Moisture con oh, controversy yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah and I talk about how this is a good case study yeah so I talk about um the way in which this brand that kind of so the natural hair movement is dated from around like maybe 2009 it starts picking up it starts to emerge it's nascent it's picking up pace in the next few years um it became even like kind of immortalized in literature michelle obama not michelle obama um chimamanda adichie wrote about it in um, americana um and she wrote about shea and moisture so shea and moisture was this brand that was like closely associated with the natural hair movement um and it was really became hugely successful and it was built up I guess, by this loyal customer base of black women with Afro-textured hair. As they became more and more successful, and they've eventually now got like investment from Unilever, um, from Bain Capital, so there's a little kind of analysis of like what all that means. Um, but I won't go into that now. Um, their marketing started really, really changing, and an ad came out in, I think it was 2017? Yeah. Tw yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and... Um, 
So you have this language around the natural hair movement, like all of the kind of like, you know, the kind of pain and struggle and the kind of decolonizing yourself from this beauty standard that's, that's designed to exclude you. You have all that language and all that emotion and energy, but it's not being said by black women. It's being said by white women with red hair. Do not ever come to me and conflate being, having, oh, being a white woman with ginger hair with my experiences growing up here, please. Like, just, da, da, da. I, can't, I can't deal with that. So it has a white woman with ginger hair, a white woman with curly hair, and a mixed-race girl with a very loose, curly, kind of princessy, long, wavy type of texture hair. And they're using now this language of the natural hair movement, and it's already empowering, and it's already, like, badass. So it's, like, our words, but, like, not from our mouths. So needless to say, so it's like that story has been co-opted because it's, like, an edgy story, but it's being um, told by people that are more marketable. Um, so there was a big backlash against that, and um, a lot of black women just felt like they had been, they had been used, and then the Shea Moisture tried to do all this, um, what's it called, collateral damage um, backtracking. Um, but yeah, that was, that, was, that was a big deal, and it affected, it affected the brand. So the question is, playing devil's advocate, why can't white women have a space in the natural hair movement? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got your Sarah Jessica Parker with the hair. Yeah, 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 you know. yeah, for real. Um, she was stigmatised. <laughs> please, you're just trying to... You're trying to provoke me. I'm just interested in your answer. <laughs> um, yeah, so like growing up, like a lot of Irish women actually have really curly hair and the default for like a, I guess I, I call it the tyranny of straightness was such that straight hair was the default for everybody. Yeah, do you remember that GHD craze that everyone was wearing in like the 2000s? Yeah. Jennifer Aniston, so poker straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so everybody wanted straight hair. But like the, uh, some people can achieve straight hair with a little GHD swoosh. Some people have to use chemical relaxers and all the maintenance that goes, that goes with that. So the processes to achieve the look are very, very different. But also the stigma that exists around curly hair is so different to the stigma that exists around um, kind of Afro textured hair. When people are like, oh, I have curly hair too. I'm like, these are completely different stories and experiences. Our hair was used, the texture hair that I have, the texture hair that you have, was used as an active and very potent part of the dehumanization of black people to justify their slavery. So the idea, the idea that these are not human beings because they don't have hair. European people have hair. African people have wool. They're more like animals. They're more like livestock. It's fine to enslave them. White women with curly hair are not coming from that history. It's a different experience. Don't conflate the two. Well, there's your answer, so I don't want to hear that in the future. <laughs> All right, I think we're going to go to questions. Yeah, we've got two roving mics, so just wait. If you could please put a hand, okay, over here, person in dungarees. <laughs> person in dungarees, hi. Um, I've um, actually please, books. Um, need to make an announcement. Questions, please, not comments or statements. And if we could surmise them in about a sentence or two. Thank you. There's no messing on Rennie's watch. <laughs> um, I've read both books. And what's really interesting about both is kind of the so signposting almost of really structural racism, 
both in story form and also in case study form. So I'm just wondering, particularly for you, Emma, because your book kind of weaves the personal and the universal experience, how did you go about that creatively? Because that's what really, really struck me in, when I read your book. Oh, uh, Good example of a question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, so I guess my um, initial starting point with hair is, is my personal experiences and my particularly traumatic experiences of childhood. Um, so I'm coming from that space. But um, for me, just relaying my experience would be boring um, and would also be inadequate. Um, I think people deserve more than that. Um, so it was like using my own experiences and emotions to kind of personalize um, these bigger historical and social processes. So honestly, for me, the... Um, that um, those two going together felt quite natural. I also, I often think of Bell Hooks, who says, the Bell Hooks is a very renowned black feminist, um, academic and writer, who says that she was very hurt and went looking for solace in theory. That's something I can like very much relate to. Um, I definitely started like reading very wi widely, did my, um, undergraduate degree in African history and African studies, did my PhD in sociology, kind of looking for answers as to why I'd experienced a lot of what I have experienced. Um, so my interest in academia and in theory comes from a personal place, so to mix the two together just makes sense. Any Hi. other questions? Hello. Oh, okay. Oh. Um, I was just going to ask, so... Have you got any literal tips for like how to overcome the dislike of your natural hair? Or like, you know that feeling of it's not straight and even though people say, oh, your curls are beautiful and you're like, yeah, I get the whole movement thing. What are the literal tips to start liking your hair? Wow. <laughs> it's, really, it's really hard. Um, I read, um, uh, do you know Zazie Beetz, the actress um, in Atlanta? Um, so she was talking about, um, I, I actually reference it in the book, she talks about um, coming to ex accept her hair. So she's mixed race, but she's one of those, she's mixed race, but her hair favours more the African or the black side of her ancestry. So um, her hair is more like my texture. And she was talking about the process of coming to love her hair, but she actually said in this interview, she was like, sometimes I still cry about how it looks and about what it can do aesthetically. And that, she's so beautiful and celebrated for being beautiful and wears her natural hair all the time. But yet she was admitting to still having these moments of feeling inadequacy and embarrassment. Um, it's just, it, it's hard. When I first cut my hair off, I actually still didn't like the way it looked. I just did it because um, I just, polit I, I just couldn't justify straightening it anymore. And I was also pregnant, so I didn't want to straighten it. Um, but uh, I'm not actually always pregnant, by the way. Um, <laughs> I have a six-year-old and I'm pregnant now. Um, so I um, cut it all off. But I felt, like I, I felt like it was a sacrifice and I felt like I was doing it like for the cause. 
Um, and after I cut it off, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? And I got like a long blonde weave, which is fine. But the reason I got it was because I was ashamed of my hair. I didn't want it to look like that. Um, for me, it was the process. It wasn't overnight. It was like the process of, well, finally like getting rid of the weave and just accepting my hair, but then learning how to maintain my hair and actually seeing like what my hair was capable of and all of like the vast and diverse array of styles I could do with it. Um, what actually an enviable hair texture it is because it is just capable. It's the, it's the hair texture that is capable of so much. And now my hair bores me. So I literally like, I switch it up, which is like very, very common in black cultures. Just that ability to like switch it up from one day to the next, literally. Um, I would be so bored if my hair was just going, sorry, no offense to anyone who has straight hair, but you guys, you guys are fine. Like me saying this isn't gonna affect you negatively in any way. Um, <laughs> I would, um, I'd get really bored. Like I wouldn't change my hair for the world because I need that, like I just need that, being able to mix it up in that way and that creativity and that culture that exists around it as well. Yeah, I help, hope that helps, but it is hard. <laughs> okay, any more questions? Okay, um, microphone over here, please. Um, if anybody on this side has a question, make yourself aware because we're gonna wrap up soon. <laughs> Um, so, I suppose, especially in Ireland, where being outspoken is a very controversial thing, especially as a woman, um, there's a lot of backlash that comes with that, and there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. Listen, even being outspoken in your group of friends is, like, <laughs> high anxiety. Never mind in the way that you do it, and you do it so powerfully and so strong, both of you, and um, particularly when it comes to race, in this time where everything is anti-immigrant, which isn't factually accurate, but you risk... Um, you risk putting yourself in a box or dividing yourself from one of us if you do speak out a bit about to defend immigrants and speak out to defend race and speak out to defend your hair and all of those other things. So that's a journey I'm only recently becoming comfortable with, like who I am and my skin color and I completely like empathize with you um, and my hair. And one of the girls in the dungarees um, was like, I love your hair. Cause it's the first time in over 14 years I've had my hair without hair extensions. First time, and I've just gone back to back getting relaxed, getting relaxed. <laughs> Not tapping. <laughs> no, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. Jesus, like, yeah, I was addicted to extensions. So I'm just wondering how you both deal with the anxiety if you do get it and how you subside it when you do have to just speak your truth. Do you want to go first? Okay. <laughs> um, I don't have anxiety. Um, I mean, I have anxiety just generally, but not about my work. <laughs> um, I was, I think, doing anti-racism. Actually, I remember when I met Emma, this was like, I think it was when your first child was like literally a baby. Yeah, yeah, it was like Be six years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah because um, it was at a feminist conference thing and we were on a panel together and you rocked up with a baby. And uh, back then, it was very unpopular to be a feminist or an anti-racist or any of those things. So, and I'm sure you can resonate as well. Um, I was just so used to everything I was saying being wildly unpopular at that point. That, uh, it was just water off a duck's back to me and people who didn't like it in my life just self-selected out and deleted themselves off my social media feeds and uh, left me to it, frankly. Um, it's, which is why now, and we were just speaking about this earlier, like in this, like, sorry, like, this moment of woke um, when some of those people who self-selected off out of my life are coming back saying, I'm proud of you. I'm like, really? I mean, my positions haven't changed. Like, <laughs> I was saying this in 2011. It's just that now I'm successful saying it. I just, 
Um, so, for me, I think principles and for me, like I guess, like the principles that I had um, were more important to me than uh, other things in life, which is not always going to be a priority. It's not going to be a priority for everyone. Like I'm somebody who can be somewhat reckless, and <laughs> like I wouldn't say to other people, "Oh, um, go after your principles and the politics that you passionately believe in." At risk, or at the expense of like some shallow friendship from somebody you met at a job four years ago, or like some extended family member who quietly disagrees and is trying to speak to your mum about maybe you should be quiet. Like um, <laughs> for me, that was more important. Uh, what I was trying to do and the work that I was trying to do and the message I was trying to get out there was was more important, I suppose. And I do think, you know, the more I did the work the more, even if people around me and in my life weren't really happy with it, they just were like, well, that's Rennie, that's, that's what she's about. They didn't think that it was ever going to be a successful route for me, um, but they were like, well, that's what she's about. So they just came to accept me for, for who I am. <laughs> yeah, I can like, very, very much re relate to that, and it's the same for me. Like, I mean, this isn't like kind of everyone's portion to be like a like kind of a, a, a commentator on race. I can completely see, even though there's more and more rewards associated with it. So suddenly, like all people, all kinds of people are woke, which is something we were talking about earlier. Well, this is as well. what I'm saying. Like, um, I remember when it was unpopular. <laughs> Hmm. Exactly. No, 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 not, no, not at all. The commodification of woke, the commodification of everything. Uh, which Emma does talk about in the book as well. Yeah, yep. I do, I do. Um, so, yeah, again, like, I have been, like, kind of pushing this line since, um, as I'm sure my mum and anyone that's known me, hi, oh, yeah, sorry, I just saw Anne. Hi, Anne. I was a bit blinded by the lights. Anyone who's known me will, will know me for my whole life will know that I've always been talking about these. I write in the book that instead of, like, making my communion communion or confirmation, instead of learning catechism, I was, um, I elected to do a self-study project on uh, the abolition of the slave trade. Um, and I was allowed to do that, I think, because it just kind of kept me out of the way. And people were just like, well, she's just like some weirdo, like, uh, that's just the kind of weird shit that black people do, which it isn't. Um, I think I was actually quite an unusual child. But I, I, I just always felt compelled to talk about these things. And Exactly as Rennie was saying, um, it, it really didn't make me popular. Um, when this started, when kind of advancing this line and having this position also started to chime with the political mood and people started inviting me to spaces to talk about these things, paying me to talk about these things, I actually found that like very hard to adjust to because I was used to kind of being a pariah. I was used to being like dismissed as like the angry, just the angry black girl with the chip on her shoulder. So when people actually, um, I, and I, I also love, like the, obviously the title of Rennie's book is so great, but that was honest, that's the thing that made a difference to me as well in that like I um, was saying all this stuff in Ireland um, to my peers, to those around me, it was generally met with hostility. I left. And then I kept saying the same stuff, but I started saying it more to, talking more to other black people. And then that was really good 
for my mental health. And I was just like, I'm, I'm actually not going to argue my humanity um, or defend like my right to whatever with people who are like committed to misunderstanding me. So I kind of stopped directly arguing with individual white people. Um, and then I was like, you know, if you want to hear my, my position on this, you can come to one of my talks or you can read mm -hmm. one of Please like... Please, invoice me. I don't yeah, but we're, <laughs> we're not remonstrating on that one-to-one -one level mm. because it's like so... Because I've been doing this since I was seven, it's deeply damaging. And you're committed to misunderstanding anyway. You're not listening to me. Um, so it, it, I don't know if this is really answering your question, but um, it is challenging. I think maybe it's um, slightly easier now because there is more... Like, when I was talking about these things in Ireland, there were very, very few black people, so I would have had, like, kind of no peers to... Even my friends would be like, oh, she's off again, she's got a massive chip on her shoulder. If I'd had black friends, I would have found that, like, hugely supportive. So I guess it's like supporting each other, amplifying each other's voices. It's still difficult, but I do think, obviously, with social media and stuff, like, there's so many things wrong and <laughs> terrible about social media, but it has kind of given a space for these things to be seen as, legit, as, as legitimate. Um, and I have noticed here as well, like even people that would have been very dismissive of what I was saying, um, now with the kind of change and the political mood, are really open to having these conversations and have actually become more quote-unquote woke. Um, so yeah, I think it's, um, it, it, it's a time where these conversations can happen. Yeah, yeah. I also want to add that like, um, although, like, we've both been doing this work for a good part of a decade, for me, I'm sure for you as well, I, I want to clarify that if you're new to the party, if you're only just realising that all these structural inequalities exist, it's not that you're... Like, we're not saying, oh, you're bad for just noticing, because ultimately, like, I don't know about you, Emma, but for me, my, my work is really about trying to win hearts and mind and eventually change the world, and, like, you need everybody on board with that one. You, you need everyone, everyone on board. And uh, so I'm not saying, oh, you can only be involved if you've been paying attention since 2008. I'm not saying that at all. Um, I'm just, I think it can be difficult sometimes um, to balance like your desire to see these inequalities end with sometimes we, like, we feel a little bit of suspicion about like, oh, suddenly everyone's on board. What? <laughs> like, I was unpopular for so long, but this is just like the growing pains of a... Uh, political movement that's gaining ground and I think our jobs are to continue to intervene and you know ultimately make the world a better place so la 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 anyway, <laughs> um, I think I'm going to go for one last question and I saw that there was a question was there one up here okay um, well let's go with a person here with the pink headscarf last question Mr Microphone if we could get down here yeah and uh, please keep it snappy because uh, we're Rapidly running out of time. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you both for a um, very informative presentation. And, um, you know, it's all very relevant. And, um, you know, at a time like this, uh, what I just want to ask is, um, you know, the, the book, Don't Touch My Hair, is properly geared to uh, an adult audience. And I know you've been through your journeys to come to where you are through childhood and all that. But is there any way that you can link us into resources for younger people, you know, that um, don't have to go through all that and suffer everything. So, you know, <laughs> to realize that their hair is okay as it is and that they're beautiful and no matter what shade or, you know, texture of hair, do you know, is there, do you ha is any, are there any resources you can point us to? Since I think you live in an environment where there are available resources. Thank you. I think that's a great question to end on. Yeah. 
Um, there, there are quite a lot of children's books that have been written um, just trying to normalise and celebrate Afro hair specifically. Um, I think one of them called Don't Touch My Hair. Um, I, don't know that, I don't know if that's the best one. I just always remember the title. Um, but there, there, there's quite a lot of them. So those resources exist. I, I also just think the, um, the visibility that Afro-textured hair is getting is really helpful as well. Just um, like, obviously Black Panther is like a massive example, but I do actually see Afro-textured hair kind of like actors, actresses, like on television with it. I do see kind of media representation of it, which is not something that I ever saw as a child. Even when I did see like a black act actress or actor, um, they would have, you know, hair that still conformed to like European standards. I would never see my own hair texture, which made me think even more so that it was deviant and that it was wrong. If I'd seen people like, you know, like Lupita, there's just, there's lots of actresses. If I'd seen those people, it would have just normalized my hair. So that would have been really helpful to me. And I think that's great that it's, that it's happening. Um, can you think of anything? Is there anything else that you would add? No. To that question. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, still, it's still hard. Um, it's still hard, but I, I think it is better than it was, um, certainly when I was a child. Um, and yeah. also, I think, I don't know if you're speaking um, specifically about your own experience. You asked if I had something to add. Now I do. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, don't, I had an environment where my hair was being relaxed from a very young age, so I had to find my texture myself and um, sort of like to link into this question about how to accept your texture. For me, it was a learning journey. Um, and uh, I suppose I decolonized my own mind by just like, I stopped. Um, well, I think we live in a bit of like a DIY media environment at the moment where you can choose your own. So I just stopped looking at images of white women who were supposed to be considered beautiful to me, who I would compare myself to. And uh, well, I basically cut off all my hair, got, got used to it, and, um, and unlearned every myth about how difficult it was to manage. And so I think as long as um, the children in your close proximity, if you're um, keeping away language that, about their hair that um, mm -hmm. suggests that it's an absolute nightmare and a curse from hell, um, it, you'll be good. <laughs> because it's a lie by the way guys that's a lie a vicious <laughs> lie so i mean this is the easiest and simplest i've ever had my hair honestly so i don't know if you want to say a closing statement emma because i'm i'm hijacking so oh no 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 no, no not at all it's a conversation um will we take a last question do we have time for that We're i don't think we do no we don't really ha we don't have time Sorry, is I know it, that you like. Um, we're doing a quick signing after. Yeah, we, so we are signing we books. I know. My I know flight's that you, at five thirty. Can yeah. you imagine? Like, <laughs> you have to um, conform to Eurocentric uh, colonial times. Oh yeah, um, or I'll this. be stranded. So, like, <laughs> so we're done. Thank you. We'll be signing books. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>